Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. The advances that are coming in battery technology will be gobsmacking. We're looking at things like solid state, which will show up in uh, the late 20s. That's where the, uh, the electrolyte is uh, ceramic solid. It's like a Blade Runner future, but without some of the, for those who've seen Blade Runner, some of the more negative apocalyptic overtones to it. And they're, they're great jobs. They pay really well. They're interesting jobs. There's a lot of science and technology that's involved in them. And, and, uh, and we don't talk about that enough. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... All of that has converged today to enable each other. And that this is where Tony gets this idea of disruptive change with the convergence of the five sectors and all of those technologies. And what we have to figure out is how not to screw it up. You know, basically we, we need to do our business differently. We need to live our lives differently so that we can optimize these technologies and make a better society for ourselves and our children. And the current... Much has been published recently about the increasing anxiety young people are feeling about the future, and for good reason. With climate change and biodiversity loss accelerating, it's easy to lose hope. And yet, it's nearly impossible to imagine that we can make progress without at least some shred of optimism. But is this optimism warranted? Markham Hislop of Energy Media thinks so. Markham derives much of his hope from Silicon Valley innovator Tony Siba, who believes that fast-approaching disruptions in five foundational sectors could lead us away from our current economic model of exploitation and extraction to one of, quote, localized creation from limitless, ubiquitous building blocks, end quote. Here's Ian's discussion with Markham about the appealing future that Tony Siba envisions. At the end of the summer, two reports came out which caught a lot of people's attention. There was the IPCC's latest report, which, to put it lightly, was not particularly hopeful. And then the Lancet put out a report about eco-anxiety, climate anxiety, and a lack of hope among young people. So if you were to say in late September of 2021, is there any reason for hope? Those two reports would suggest well, you're going to have to work pretty hard to find any hope. However, the discussion that we are going to have today is every bit about hope. And this is not just sort of pie-in-the-sky, airy-fairy kind of stuff. This is grounded in reality. And the person that we can sort of turn to is Tony Seba and his work with Rethink X. So tell us a bit about Tony Seba. You have interviewed him numerous times on your podcast and on several interviews. So uh, what has you excited about his work? Tony is a very interesting dude. Uh, I got to tell you, um, 
I interview a lot of people. Uh, I and of course, you know, I have to read a lot of studies and and what have you that goes along with that. And I rarely find someone with the breadth of uh, analysis that that Tony has. And, and we should mention too, he has a a, a co-founder and partner in Rethink X, uh, James Abim, uh, who yes. doesn't do a lot of the public work that that but Tony does. And so Tony started out as a lecturer at Stanford, and his uh, area of, of expertise was disruption. And he famously did a, a number of videos, and because and, and, I've seen this all over my, uh, my social media feeds, and he, he would show a photograph of, you know, New York City in 19, I don't know, 17 or something, and it was, you know, some, some cars and trucks, uh, but mostly horses. And then in by 1930, uh, you, you'd show another photograph and there wasn't a horse in, in, in sight. And, and it was the power of disruption, the new technology, the internal combustion engine and cheap petroleum that had banished that. They had completely disrupted the transportation system. And then of course, this disrupting transportation disrupted uh, urban design. I mean, that gave rise to suburbs. It uh, changed delivery, you know, like freight delivery. It, it changed uh, factories, it, it gave rise to new industries. I mean, it was, it was really a set of technologies uh, that, that transformed society as we know it, and particularly uh, after World War II, uh, you know, it gave rise to the US as the, as the great superpower and, and economic power. So that study of how new technologies and new ideas uh, disrupt societies uh, is really his area of, of expertise. And I like him a lot uh, because his vision, when you put all the pieces together, uh, and he did himself in a, in a piece called uh, Rethink Humanity, but when you put all of his work together, it's almost utopian. Mm. It's, it's that optimistic. I mean, he talks about how we can eliminate poverty, we can eliminate armed conflict, we can eliminate, uh, we can give everybody the, the, you know, everyone can have their basic needs met, you know, shelter and food and safety and, and so on. And, and I think for students today who are looking at the world and thinking, my goodness, what have, am I going to inherit when I become an adult? You know, climate, I mean, we're going to have a, a you know, this, our, our earth is going to be in, in big trouble, our environment is in big trouble, biodiversity, and all of these, these horribly challenging, uh, horribly big challenges. And where are the solutions? There are very few of them. And Tony Siba has this vision uh, that I think is, is profoundly optimistic and is uh, so happy to share the Tony Siba with your, uh, with your teacher listeners who will hopefully share some of that with their students. Of course. And there's some interesting symmetry. You mentioned about photographs from, say, 1917 compared to 1930. And there's that 100-year gap where we find ourselves now in another decade of the 20s. Maybe didn't get off to the, right, the best start. But you've talked a lot in your work how this is the decade of disruption technologically, and we are going to reach a convergence point by the end of this decade, the beginning of 2030, in five foundational sectors, information, energy, food, transportation, and materials. And we're going to sort of walk through each of those during this conversation and look at what has been happening over the past 20 or 30 years, 
what is set to happen. And I think to kind of help frame this, we'll talk about S-curves, and that's another thing that comes up a lot in your work, and you use a hockey stick model. I, I don't know if you played hockey. I was a left-handed shot, which lines up perfectly with the S model. So the, the blade of the stick, looking at it from left to right, kind of a slow upward curve, and then at the heel, you hit that inflection point, and it goes almost straight up. So how does that process and that model work in terms of technological adoption? Well, I should point out that I played junior hockey and senior hockey back in the uh, in the 70s. And uh, uh, those who know me often say that my social media etiquette uh, looks like it was designed by the Broadway bullies. Uh, so, oh, Philly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess that's one of the reasons why I, I like the, uh, the hockey stick uh, uh, explanation for the S-curve. So the, the S-curve is basic, and, it's, and I should point out, the S-curve is best understood or it's very helpful to look at A.E. Rogers' uh, um, adoption uh, adopter curve. So, you know, the old uh, innovator adopter, early adopter, sorry, early adopter, early majority. We'll get into that. Yeah, but the S curve, sure. So the S curve, when you get a new in, uh, technology introduced to, to the market, uh, generally what happens is they start at the, the very, very beginning of the S curve at like the toe of the hockey stick. And usually uh, technologies are, new technologies are more expensive. They're not as, as efficient. They're not as useful as, as the existing dominant technology in the marketplace. So it always takes, you know, five, 10, often 20 years uh, for them to kind of Im improve incrementally. And as they improve and they, they drop in costs, they improve in e efficiency and probably most important, improve in value. And, and the value here is a really important concept because take a look at, in your pocket, you've probably got an, a, 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 some kind of a smartphone. And I do. Sure. And when the smartphone was introduced in, in 2007, you know, the, the iPhone by Apple, it was very expensive. And still today, you know, you're going to pay a thousand or $1,200 for a, a new, a new smartphone where you could have a, a flip phone for zero. Why don't you want a flip phone? Well, because you know, the, 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 my iPhone has so many apps on it. Instead of doing six things on a flip phone, I can do 6,000 things. It, it literally is a, you know, a, a foundational tool of my business and as it is for many people. And so we're willing to pay more and then pay more for data and, and so on on top of that because of the value we perceive. It's not always the lowest cost, but it always usually is the highest value. And so the convergence of, you know, low, lower cost, better technology, higher value, all of that leads. Eventually, the, the uh, new technology improves. So it works its way from the toe to the heel of the hockey stick. And then at that point, it's the inflection point. And that's, that's where it becomes the, the better value, the lower cost, and it's ready to take over the marketplace. And so then it sort of gets on that, you know, the shaft of the hockey stick, it starts zooming up, uh, sales, you know, begin zooming up. Uh, to the point where it gets to 70, 80, 90% market share. And then usually there's a little, you know, curve at the end, the last part of the S, where before it becomes, you know, the total, totally dominant in the market. And where AE Rogers adopter curve comes in is you can, it's sort of mirrors that S curve. You, so in, initially you've got uh, innovators who, you know, the two and a half percent who will, 
you know, they, they camp out in front of the, uh, the Apple store. They, they'll pay whatever <laughs> is required to have the latest and greatest gadgets. And then you've got the early adopter who's kind of the, you know, needs is okay with a, a little lower price and a little less risk. And then you've got the early majority and then the, the late majority and then the laggards. And each one of those, you know, is takes up a percentage of the, uh, of the usage of the uh, adoption of, the, of that technology. And, and so you can kind of chart how technologies are, you know, moving up those curves and say some intelligent things about, you know, what's the, uh, when they likely to become dominant and so on. So if we look at, and we'll be talking about this uh, much more, I think on the first webinar, Ian, is- Oh, for sure. Yeah, if you look at where the, uh, the technologies today that are disruptive, so, you know, wind and solar and batteries and electric vehicles and artificial intelligence and on and on, a lot of them got started in the 1990s on a, you know, into the market uh, in their current commercial form. You know, uh, wind and solar did, lithium ion batteries in the early 90s, uh, GM's EV1, first electric vehicle. And then it took them 20, 25 years, almost 30 years to get commercial. And what do we see now? Wind and solar are the cheapest way to produce electricity, lithium ion batteries are you know coming down in price and going up in energy density the range of your electric vehicle on and on and on and on and on and imagine thousands of new energy technologies because those are the ones we see all the time they get all the ink you know the, they're the sure. most dominant ones but behind the scenes are all kinds of other technologies that are enabling technologies and and so this is a really as as tony points out a really profound time in the history of technology and in, in, in the history of humanity. Uh, and we're getting ready. We are in now in the midst of a, uh, a disruption. And just like the 1920s was the uh, disruptive decade for the last energy transition, uh, this is the 2020s are the decade of disruption for this one. And by 2030, uh, when we look back on 2021, uh, things are going to look very different than they do now. And part of it is reduction in carbon emissions, but it's also just a fundamental shift in the nature of our economy, which still is currently based on a lot of extraction and exploitation. And in a lot of the reading that I do, very wise people say, yes, we need to pay attention to decarbonization and climate change, but let's also not forget about habitat loss and the crash in biodiversity. And changing the nature of our economy is central to facing those issues in addition to the climate crisis. And this shift that we are in the midst of could take us from a model that's based on extracting coal, oil, steel, livestock, concrete, and basing it more on photons, electrons, DNA, molecules. Why are we not talking more about this? I mean, that, that is so exciting. Well, I think part of that, and I'll use the the, criti the criticism that uh, that Tony has has received from other experts and in the media as an example of why we're not talking about it. Uh, so I first interviewed him in in, in in 2017, and he had put out his first rethink study. It was rethink transportation, and it was all about moving from our model of private ownership of automobiles to one where essentially. Uh, it was transportation as a service. And so think of fleets of robo-taxis. 
essentially you would have autonomous robo taxis that you would call up on your app and uh, it would the cost per kilometer would be like one tenth of what it is now it would be so cheap to get around and and you would just tell it where to go and it would set you you know drop you off there and it would be so convenient no one would want to buy uh, a private car why would you own one when you could just get around like that yeah and he said that by the end of 2030 95 percent of u.s miles traveled would be by transportation as a service well the problem tony is very emphatic about his i mean what he does as an <laughs> economist is he takes cost curves and other trends he plays them out to their logical conclusion and he's not afraid of of making very very bold you know predictions like that and and so a number of experts came in and said, oh, come on, Tony. I mean, really, 95%? And we may not even have autonomous, we may not have robo-taxis by then. Now, of course, Tony points to the fact that two years ago, you could get in a robo-taxi at the Las Vegas, at McCarran Airport and go down to the Las Vegas Strip in a robo-taxi. And now you're seeing them in Austin and New York and all sorts of places. Very rudimentary, very early days. We're not at you know sort of level five full autonomy yet but you can see the things he was talking about begin to come to fruition and i do personally don't think that you know by 2030 we'll be at not anywhere close to 95 percent we might be at you know two percent might be at five percent maybe because there's still you know tremendous technological uh, challenges that have to be overcome for us to get to any significant percentage of you know, you having transportation as a service. Nevertheless, T Tony got the trend right. And I think that's that's the important thing here. But he does that with every one of his these areas where he applies his disruption model and and people are, are, are rightly skeptical. Now, I, I think you uh, you listened to the podcast uh, episode that I did with Tony, where I asked yes. him about that. Yeah. And I said, Tony, I don't, your, you know, my take on Tony Siba is his value is not as a predictor of the future. It's getting us to rethink the current, the, the current model, our current paradigms, our current scenarios. That's, you know, to rethink it and say, hey, you know what? Change is coming. What could it look like? What's the possibility here? If we really played this, you know, these new technologies out, and then as Tony Again, uh, you know, it's the economist in him. He talks about organizing systems. So you can have great technology, but you still need to price it and deliver it and, you know, train for it and do all sorts of other things to make that technology or to bring to enjoy the full potential of whatever that technology might be. And, you know, some uh, countries or jurisdictions are going to maybe develop those and some maybe fall short. And don't get all all the benefits of, of that technology. So there's still a whole lot of work to do. Uh, many a slip betwixt club, cup and lip, as they used to say. <laughs> and so Tony gets criticized for that a lot. And I don't think that he's been all that successful at turning the uh, the rethink humanity into a narrative. You know, he as an economist, he's caught up in the details and the math, and he likes doing that. But there needs to be a narrative around this where we explain it to teachers, we explain it to students and parents, and, and they get it. You know, we tell stories about it. Here's how things could change, where they could change, the benefits of the change. And when you're talking about change on a grand scale like this, 
this is a not something we're not going to do this in a weekend conference <laughs> no you know you have it yeah it has to gain some momentum and and catch fire in the popular imagination get covered in the media and, and those sorts of things and tony i don't think that's i don't think tony's wired for that that's not his thing and somebody needs to come along and do that uh might be me might be somebody else and explain that and then we'll see where the see where the conversation goes but that's that's why i think we're not talking about it as much as we should is because those ideas just haven't got enough traction yet and so uh, we'll see what the next few years bring yeah and i guess you can almost say we're almost taking matters into our own hands we're having this conversation and then this three-part webinar series which is entirely free and open to educators open to anyone really but uh, it's geared towards educators all about these technologies and it really it's kind of an exercise in future casting and we see so much in the scholarship about effective climate change education how we need to provide a viable alternative we can't just and i talk about this on many episodes of the podcast so for those who are hearing this for the 800th time i apologize but it's important we can't just talk about the mad max future we have to say here's a future where we got it right and one of the great benefits of that is we don't have to create technologies out of nowhere. They already exist. Before we wrap up that thought on the vision for the future, yeah. one quick note. Uh, in 2019, I attended a, a workshop uh, where Dr. Anil Chimov, who's a neuropsychiatrist from uh, Stanford, talked. And at that time, it was kind of the height of, the, the, of Trumpism. Mm. Right. And, and very profoundly uh, not optimistic vision of the future, very angry and, and negative. And he made the point that populists have used fear and anger for centuries to manipulate, you know, populaces and voters and so on. The only antidote, the only antidote from a neuropsychology point of view to that is hope and optimism. Yeah. So if you want to change things and if you don't like the, the negativity out there, you have to have a hope and optimism narrative that people can latch on to and give themselves hope. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, Chima, C-H-E-E-M-A, Anil, A-N-E-E-L, I, I believe it is. And if anybody wants to, to take a look at that, because it's a, it's a, for me, it was a kind of a profound, uh, profound insight. Yeah, we'll put a, a note in the show notes about that and include the link. That's great. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine-back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. In discussions about climate solutions, you've likely heard that we already have all the tools we need. What do these look like in the energy and transportation sectors? So a lot of that hope specifically in the area of energy comes down to the swb solar wind and battery if you could walk us through some of the details of that and what we can get excited about in that area excellent segue by the way oh thank you <laughs> look what here's what tony himself said in the rethink energy uh 
piece. We are on the cusp of the fastest, deepest, most profound disruption of the energy sector in over a century. Like most disruptions, this one is being driven by the convergence of several key technologies whose costs and capabilities have been improving on consistent and predictable trajectories. So namely solar photovoltaic power, wind power, and lithium ion battery energy storage. So he calls this a superpower, that it's so profoundly disruptive that, and for Tony, when something drops in price four to 10 times, that then disrupt, will disrupt an industry. And so now if you look at what are called levelized costs of energy estimates, uh, and your, your teachers can go to lazard.com, L-A-Z-A-R-D.com, and they have the LCOE estimates that are generally used within the industry. And what you would see is that I think wind is about $22 a megawatt hour and solar is about $25 a megawatt hour. And then you go up to gas and it's 35 or 40 and, you know, nuclear is 112 or something. I mean, the, the there's a, a, a significant difference now between wind and solar and other forms of generating electricity. And for, for teachers who are in British Columbia or in Western Canada, looking at the Site C dam, BC Hydro, well, other economists other than BC Hydro now think that the levelized cost of energy will be about 130 to 150 per megawatt hour. Wow. So that's that's the kind of the, the difference. And in Canada, because our costs are a little higher, uh, generally you're looking at about uh, oh high 30s, maybe 40, $45 a megawatt hour, but still you know much lower than than other forms. So then when you combine it with batteries or some kind of storage, but batteries are, are the most popular these days, then now you're talking about taking the intermittency out of it. Because of course, as critics will say, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always <laughs> blow. And the, the changes, I've had the, the good fortune to interview many, many battery scientists around the world. And the, the advances that are coming in battery technology will be gobsmacking. We're looking at things like solid state, which will show up in uh, the late 20s. That's where the, uh, the electrolyte is a uh, ceramic solid. So your energy density will go up, your costs will go down and it'll be much more safe. You probably won't have you know, these fires that we, we see with the Chevy Bolt, for instance. Hmm. So you're gonna have those. Plus you have, there are all kinds of other chemistries coming out like iron air, for instance, that have different applications. They're specialized applications that'll be very cheap. And, and, and so the, the amount of storage capacity that's coming to the, the energy system is we're on right on the cusp of it. And if you want a practical application today, you take a look at what California has brought to their uh, energy grid. Uh, over the last year, you know, you remember it's only like summer of 2020 when they had the big blackout and 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 all those problems because of wildfires and, and extreme heat. And what they did is put a, a, I guess as a percentage, it's small, but still, it's it was quite a big build out of batteries. And already, I, I'm seeing studies about how that's having an improvement in in dealing with the intermittency and and so on. And that's, we're only going to see a, a lot more of that over time. So Tony thinks that this combination of really, really cheap electricity, and by the 2030, it'll probably be down to about, you know, 10 or 15, maybe 10 or 15 bucks for a megawatt hour. So that's, that's like a, a when we, as, as in our uh, homes, you know, we think in terms of uh, cents per kilowatt hour. And so right now, I think in, in BC, I'm paying about uh, nine and a half or 10 cents a kilowatt hour. 
uh, in other parts of the country, I think, uh, you know, it's a little more than that, it's 12, 15 cents. Down in the US, it can be 24. So if you go from to one and a half to two, from where we are, or if you're in New York, where you're paying 24 cents or California, th that's a huge difference. That, that, that changes everything because now we're going to have cheap fuel for our vehicles. And that includes, you know, big applications like freight trucking, for instance. We're, we're going to be able to heat and cool things much more efficiently. We'll use heat pumps and then, you know, cheap, cheap electricity. It'll give rise to whole new industries like um, uh, green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is made with renewable electricity and electrolyzers. And, you know, so that there's literally no, uh, uh, no CO2 emissions associated with it at all. And that'll be important for hydrogen will be important for decarbonizing, hard to decarbonize industries like cement and steel and, and maybe long haul freight trucking, those sorts of things. So the amount of change that's coming in industry is nothing short of, of phenomenal. And we don't see it in Canada. Now, this is a really interesting point. We, we've already got 60% um, hydro in, you know, on average across Canada, uh, 70, well, it's about 80% now of if you include low, other low emitting uh, or no emitting power generation like nuclear and some wind and solar. So we don't have the pressures on us to decarbonize the way the Americans did. I mean, they were up at 55 or 60% coal, you know, not that long ago, 12, 15, mm, yeah. 12, 15 years ago, right? So a lot of pressure on them to get off coal and to do some and to switch to, you know, first natural gas, now a lot of renewables. So what they've done is their power grids and their utilities have been under tremendous pressure to innovate. And one of the things, ways they've done that is more wind and solar. And you find states like Texas and California that are kind of leading that charge. But distributed energy resources, which are wind and solar and batteries, are profoundly disruptive for another reason, is because big industry takes a look at that and goes, why am I paying 24 cents a, kilometer, a kilowatt hour when I can just I'll put some solar panels up in my in my yard and in, or in my field or on my buildings or whatever, and I'll generate my own power and you know for two cents or four cents, whatever. And suddenly the utility has lost a very very large customer, and you get enough of those migrating uh, off your grid, and that's a really really big commercial problem for you. And the Canadians are, know what's going on. I mean, you, you can look at utility reports from BC Hydro, the Alberta electrical system operator. There's lots of them. They know the trends, but we're just not feeling the pressure as much here yet, but it'll get here. But down there, they're profoundly reinventing their electricity system. They're, you know, more trans, Biden is putting hundreds of billions of dollars, assuming the bill gets passed in Congress, putting yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars into the transmission system, into the infrastructure, into all of the batteries and all of that. And it's all because they need to figure out how to make this intermittent SWB, as Tony puts it, how to make it work. And it's not clear yet how that will all play out by 2030, but they're, they're feverishly working to make it work. And it'll be fascinating to see. And it will Tony thinks, and I agree with him, that it will have very, uh, it'll have enormous implications for the kind of industries that the United States gets into. Biden understands that already China is ahead in electric vehicles, uh, solar panels, wind turbines, and electric cars. 
right? That's the new industry. That's the 21st century uh, industry. And so Biden has said very clearly that he intends to make put the U.S. back in the, in the driver's seat, if you will, by 2030. He said that in his campaign literature, and he's trying to follow through with it. So the transformative nature of this technology Tony's talking about, Canadians only have to look south of the border, uh, and they can see uh, how it's already uh, affecting our, our neighbors to the south. It's hardly revolutionary to say, you know, money talks. And the figures that you talk about obviously are very appealing to industry, and then when we shift to the transportation side of things, the amount of savings in terms of personal vehicles or an entire shift away from personal vehicles becomes very appealing to a family that's trying to save dollars. Can you take us into the transportation side of the disruption that we are in the midst of? Well, I, I generally, I, I kind of sketched out Tony's view of transportation as a, as a service. And this, I think, uh, we'll probably see, you know, later in the 2020s, maybe into the 2030s before it gets to be really widespread. But there are already places where it could be transformative. And I'll give you an example. QTRIC, which is the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Investment Consortium. There we go, QTRIC. Anyway, nice. great organization <laughs> out, of, uh, out of Toronto run by uh, a brilliant woman named uh, Josip, Dr. Josipa Petrunic. And uh, they work with uh, transit agencies across the country around electrification, you know, mostly of buses, but others, shuttles and so on. And uh, there have been five pilot projects with shuttles within those trans uh, local transit uh, systems. And I've interviewed her a number of times. And I think where this is going to go in is what we're going to, we're going to see uh, autonomous uh, shuttles be the solution to the first mile, last mile problem for public transit, like for LRT and you know GO trains and that sort of thing. Because when I was living in Calgary, for instance, I, I lived in the Southeast, the nearest sea uh, uh, train, I almost forgot what it was called. The sea train system was in the Southwest. So I would have to get in my car and then drive 20 minutes to get over to the sea to the train station, which is if I wanted to go downtown, Whereas if I just drove downtown, it was also 20 minutes. Or I could take a bus and it was going to be two hours or an hour to get to the, and it just horribly, it's not an efficient use of my time. And, and so I didn't take C, the C train very often. Now, if I could take one of these autonomous shuttles and I just called it up like a robo taxi on, with an app on my phone and it came and got me and it took me to the, to the C train. And then another one picked me up when I, when I got, you know, and took me to my destination where I was having a meeting or whatever, you know, that then has a, a utility, it has a value greater than just whatever it costs per mile. And so we're at the very early stages, these five pilot projects have been reasonably successful, they've identified some issues where uh, that uh, municipalities now have to grapple with. Uh, for instance, the idea, these things work best when they have a dedicated lane uh so they're like they're bike lanes kind of like a bike lane exactly right well that's that's very difficult in big cities mm. you know so how are we going to fix they think they they've got some solutions for it but you know this is going to take another five years or so to work all those kinks out and 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 make it work but that's an area where it would be i i think uh it would it would change the way big cities move people around which is already a, a problem, you know, with commuting and so on. 
So that's that's an example of disruption within a an existing uh, transportation system, and we've already got some examples. I mean, how many months ago was it that Ford introduced the uh, F-150 Lightning, their electric pickup truck? And we were expecting that maybe 2025 to 2027, we would see pickup trucks get to be price parity with, with the, uh, the gas-powered uh, models. But Ford stood it on its head. Their, uh, the Lightning is now $2,500 US, less than the gas-powered version. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and the reason they did that now it's just the base model. You want you want to put some yeah fully loaded into it, then it's going to cost uh, it gets cost a little bit more, but uh, nevertheless, Ford said, you know what, the F one fifty is is the workhorse pickup in uh, in North America. We own that that market, and we're not giving it up. Not to Tesla, not to GM, not to anybody, and so we're going to come out and be really aggressive with an electric pickup truck aimed at that market. And so suddenly now, instead of, you know, 2027, now you're at 2021 because they needed to innovate. So there's all of these sorts of things that are that are happening that I think uh, are uh, accelerating the revolution in transportation that uh, Tony talked about. Uh, we may not see it. It may not turn out exactly, you know, 95 percent of uh, miles traveled as transportation as a service, the way he said but nevertheless, it will be disrupted and it will be much different in 2030 than it is today. And even just the example that you gave about the first mile, last mile issue and having to drive in your individual vehicle to a place where you could take a bus or a subway, just eliminating that over the life of a vehicle, you're talking about significant financial savings, like a, a lot more money for groceries for the average family. Yeah, that's right. And, and imagine... Uh, those people who said, hey, you know what? Maybe we only need one car. We'll use these shuttles and we'll throw in a $2,000 e-bike. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm seeing now, my wife and I are considering e-bikes, uh, which would cut down on the amount of miles we, we travel by, by car. I'm seeing, you know, what do they call them? Cargo e-bikes, you know, where, they, hmm. where they've got a basket on the front and a, and a basket on the back. And, and I, you know, friends of mine on social media have, have got them and that's how they go get groceries now. So, all sorts of little technologies here and there that that maybe aren't as big and visible as a, a as a F-150 Lightning, but nevertheless, all of them are changing the transportation model that we have, particularly in in the urban centers. Not so much in you know rural areas and small cities, sure, but certainly in the big cities, that's where this is going to start. And then as the technology gets better and cheaper, we'll see it spread out to smaller cities and and eventually, I suppose, in, into the rural areas. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles? The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 120 of those and counting. To save you time, because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Now imagine a world where most food is generated locally and where the global energy system has a dramatically reduced material footprint. 
So we're going to move some decimal places around now. We talk about how this big shift in transportation has happened in approximately 100 years, from the 1920s to the 2020s. We're going to add a couple more zeros to that now. And we're looking at a change in agriculture, the biggest change in about 10,000 years. That's not a mistake for anyone listening. A 10,000-year history of agriculture is about to flip. What does Tony Seba say about that? Well, a little caveat here is that this is not, uh, this is kind of food and agriculture is a bit outside energy and climate. So I haven't done as many interviews around this as I have on, on the other side. So I don't have the kind of detail uh, that I do for the other stuff. But I think that, when was it a couple of years ago, AW brought out the Impossible Burger? Yeah, right? it, yeah it was I remember plant, that. Plant-based meat. And, and, and I think if we think of that, that symbolizes the, the, the revolution in food that Tony's talking about. I mean, essentially what he's saying is we're gonna see the end of animal protein, where it's all gonna to move to, and not even plant protein. I mean, we're gonna make all of this protein in, in factories, in laboratories and in factories, and we're going to drop the price of that protein by 10, and we're going to make food uh, decentralized. So we're going to, instead of having, uh, you know, like in California, for instance, if you go down in the, in the Central Valley of California, starting at maybe Bakersfield and you work your way up north, I mean, that's where a lot of Canada's uh, fruit and vegetables come from. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and uh, meat in uh, you know, Western Canada, the big stockyards and so on. We won't see those anymore. We'll manufacture our food in plants close to our home, close to our cities. And so we won't have to be trucking them all over the, over the country and, you know, from these big, huge factories uh, where they currently, uh, where our food is, is processed. And it, so it'll be healthier, cheaper. Uh, it'll create jobs and employment close to us and we'll be healthier and it, with so many resources that get put into creating this food system and, and tending our, our, you know, our livestock and so on that will, can be diverted to other areas and the impact on the environment will be, will be significantly less. I mean, hey, no more cow farts, right? Yeah, the methane. <laughs> no more methane being released into the atmosphere from all of those huge herds of, of cows. So he calls this precision fermentation. And I have to confess, I don't know a lot about the science behind precision fermentation. And then he talks about food as software. So uh, individual molecules engineered by scientists uploaded to databases like molecular cookbooks is what he calls them, that food engineers anywhere in the world can use to design products in the same way that software developers design apps. That's a radical vision yeah, for, the, uh, for the food system. It's like a Blade Runner future, but without some of the for those who've seen Blade Runner, some of the more negative apocalyptic overtones to it. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. It, it has that kind of futuristic feel. And I think that the, um, uh, the Impossible Burger, and now actually you, you see there are a few other fast food chains that have come out with, with that kind of a, that's the thin edge of the wedge. You know, that's where I think my take on this and, and perhaps some of your, the teachers listening to this maybe are better, better informed on this particular topic, but it, it looks to me like this is the, the toe of the hockey stick, that that's where that is. And we might not see that 
for another you know 20 years before it hits the inf inflection point. Now, Tony says, of course, as Tony uh, does, that it'll all happen by 2030 and, and the, the, the revolution will have arrived. I think probably not. That's, that's my take on it yet, but uh, I guess we'll see. We'll have to create a time capsule. <laughs> if we switch to materials, what does Tony say about that? I mean, obviously there are major concerns about the entire life of a material from extraction to use to disposal. And we did an episode a little while ago about circular economic models and how there has to be a total rethink of this very linear model. And I know Tony has spoken about just getting rid of that linear model altogether when it comes to material use. What are some of the particulars of that? Well, one of the points he makes is that once we shift to everything being electric, we're going to need a lot less. We're not going to need super tankers to transport the oil. We're not going to need oil rigs and casing to you know do the wells. We're not going to need pipelines. We're not, we're not going to need a lot of the, the infrastructure that requires a tremendous amount of, of materials. And he didn't say this, but I, this is, I have a bit of a, uh, a pet topic of mine, which is making carbon fiber out of the oil sands bitumen in Alberta. Now You wrote a is, book about it. I did indeed. This has been going on since about 2017, when researchers at the uh, Alberta Innovates began researching how to turn this incredibly carbon-rich uh, hydrocarbon uh, into, some, into a material instead of turning it into feedstock for fuel. And when you think about it, I mean, bitumen is one of, has one of the highest carbon intensities of any crude oil on the planet. Uh, and some of it, in fact, because the average might be 70 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel, some of it's 200. You know, which would pretty much make it the the highest, yeah. uh, the highest carbon intensity in the world. So anyway, they looked at this and they said, why don't we take what is now a liability, the the carbon intensity, and turn it into an asset? What can we do with that? And so they're working on this process to make carbon fiber out of it. Now, when I was doing a piece for uh, Alberta uh, Views magazine, I interviewed a fellow, uh, Alex Walk, who is the VP of Sales for uh, Voltec the big uh, carbon fiber manufacturer down in Missouri. And, and we talked about it. And he said, look, I went up there and uh, my first time I went into Edmonton and went to see the, the laboratories where the scientists were working on this. He, he said, I couldn't believe it. He said, what a fantastic resource. So they've got this stuff they can produce really cheaply. I mean, we, can, we think that we can uh, make carbon fiber at half the price currently. I mean, that's why we don't see a lot more carbon fiber in our automobiles, for instance, is a little, it's just too expensive. So, and, and then there, there's a, a never ending resource. I mean, there are literally 160 billion barrels of bitumen up in Northern Alberta. I mean, you, you could build things for now till the end of time and never run out of, uh, run out of carbon fiber. And the, first place you would want to use it is in electric vehicles because you've got these batteries that are that are heavy and so electric vehicles have to cart around an extra you know 500 pounds or a thousand pounds or whatever whatever it happens to be and if you could make more of it or preferably all of it out of car carbon fiber then you could lightweight it and you would increase the efficiency and the uh, the range of the vehicle significantly so lightweighting, as they say, is a, a, a big trend in electric vehicle development these days. And carbon fiber will no doubt play a part. Uh, I interview, 
Alberta Innovates a number of times about this. They thought last year that they were five to seven years away from being able to make uh, commercial uh, carbon fiber. And here's an interesting thing. According to Alex Walk, you always build your carbon manufacturing plant close to your source of car carbon fiber precursor, which is what you'd make out of the bitumen. So now this could be a huge industry for Alberta to partially offset the loss of oil and gas jobs uh, that will inevitably come as we switch to, to we, as we electrify transportation. So these are some of the, you know, th th this is an, a really exciting development on the material side that we're seeing in our own backyard that could have um, a profound effect on, on transportation, uh, and on, on the oil and gas industry in, in Alberta. Now, one of the things, the points that Tony made with respect to your earlier point is that when you don't have to have all of this uh, hydrocarbon uh, or fossil fuel infrastructure, it frees up a lot of materials to do other things with it. And these days, you know, the, the biggest source of feedstock for, for steel mills is in fact recyclable steel. So, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, dig it up and, and we'll then we'll recycle and turn it back into steel. And Tony is of the opinion that once you've reduced all the amount of inputs that you need in the resource inputs into these industries, then you'll we'll have all with a little bit of with more sustainable mining practices and all of the scrap and just using less, we'll have all of the uh, raw materials we'll need to make materials going forward. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats and you know what? How about I let my co-host Jade Harvey Barrel tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Machine learning in the information sector gives many people pause, as they fear that their jobs will be lost. Or will they? Maybe this is a good opportunity to look at the last, the fifth of the five foundational sectors, and that's information. And I know it's still sort of early days. Tony hasn't gone into this as much, but what are some things that we could reasonably expect over the next few years in the information sector? Well, I've run across information uh, as a transformative technology in the energy sector for quite a while. And, you know, this big data analytics 
uh, and artificial intelligence and machine learning is really, it, I mean, it's, it's revolutionized other industries already like manufacturing. And it is uh, in the process of revolutionizing oil and gas, for instance, that I was mentioning uh, earlier, we, we were talking about going up to uh, Fort McMurray for a trade show in 2018. And my presentation at that trade show was all about how all of these technologies were going to increase the labor the product of the work productivity of the workers, so that you needed far less workers to extract the same number of barrels of oil. And we're seeing that already. I mean, the peak employment in oil and gas in Canada was like 220,000 in 2013, 2014. And now it's, uh, it's uh, I think, 150 or 60,000. And like, and, but the, the amount of oil that they're producing is, uh, is double. So there, that's, that's the kind of productivity increases that can come with using data and digital technologies uh, to um, uh, when you adopt them into your into your business model, and I think that that is probably where Tony is going at the end of the day. Is this is one of the, the the key now become one of the key enabling technologies to make everything else work. You know, if you're doing predictive maintenance, if if you're doing forecasting, if you're doing, I mean, all of that stuff. It, the amount of data that we can collect with cheap sensors. And, and then feed into artificial intelligence software and spit out you know, insights for management to act upon is nothing short of, of amazing. I'll give you an example. Husky Energy is no longer, uh, it got about a year ago, it, it got gobbled up by Synovus Energy, but Husky Energy, I interviewed them uh, for my book and the, their uh, innovation officer told me that Every office worker in Husky, then the, the tower in downtown Calgary, was being taught artificial intelligence software so they could automate their own work processes. Wow. You know, that, that, <laughs> speaking of Blade Runner, you know, it kind yeah. of had that, it kind of had that futuristic uh, feel to it, but here we are today. And, and uh, Jason Hinchcliffe was his name. And Jason told me, he said, this is going to be to the 2020s what, uh, the Excel spreadsheet was to the 1990s, you know, in terms of allowing people to to crunch data and and uh, more effectively uh, and and then use that to improve their their productivity. So you can't say enough uh, when you're dealing with industries that are resource intensive or their factories or they're the kind of things that Tony's talking about in terms of like food. Being able to crunch data, large amounts of it, and extract insights is absolutely critical. So the fact that we've got this tech, these technologies that we're now adopting in mass, and it comes along at exactly the right time. And I should point out that that actually leads me to another point, which is all of these technologies have converged at the same time. I don't know what a historian of technology would make of this, but it, it, it astounds me that the transportation, elect, uh, energy, information, materials, all of that, which is, you know, has a science base, comes out of a laboratory and, and so on, all of that has converged today to enable each other. And that, this is where Tony gets this idea of disruptive change with the convergence of the five sectors and all of those technologies. And what we have to figure out is how not to screw it up. 
you know, basically we, we need to do our business differently. We need to live our lives differently so that we can optimize these technologies and make a better society for ourselves and our children. And the current model we have uh, got us to where we are. You know, it's this sort of in Canada, it's a mixed economy that we have and, and that's all well and good. But maybe we need to be rethinking that to work better with this you know, these technologies that are, are coming down the pipeline, as it were, and, and which will radically change things. We want to get the most benefit from that change as opposed to not as much benefit or making things actually worse. Bringing this all back around into an educational setting. So like this has, you know, been a great crash course in technology that is out there, technology that you can talk about in your classroom. You can listen to this podcast and there are many of your podcasts and interviews on YouTube and articles you've written and articles that other people have written or that Tony Siva's written. I mean, his, his book that he co-wrote came out last year in 2020. Like th there are lots of resources out there. So I guess I think a, a natural conclusion point here for this discussion as we are talking to educators is what can we do with this information? And I think particularly with youths, adolescents, students in high school, you can run various simulations, you know, run a simulation where you see what happens with adoption of electric vehicles over the next 10 years. And what are the other impacts that that has on society? Like if food is generated less centrally and more locally, how does that change our distribution of the population? We've seen this mass migration to cities to the point where cities are not affordable for so many people. Does this potentially mean that demographically we'll be able to spread out more and sort of have this mid-sized community come back instead of, you know, this all or nothing city or country? Like, I feel like all of this information could be such a great starting point to elaborate simulations and discussions. Do you have any thoughts on what advice you might give to educators? I'd love to have a high, high, uh, class of high school students uh, comment on the cultural significance of pizza bots. Let's, yes, let's talk about pizza bots. Let's they made me think about... of that movie WALL-E, the Pixar movie. Yeah, yeah, they, there you go. I, I, interviewed, I interviewed a fellow whose name escapes me now, but I think it was with the uh, Conference Board of Canada. And they're experimenting now uh, with uh, delivering pizzas with little boxes, heated boxes on wheels, and they'll come up the sidewalk and they'll stop in front of your house and send your, your phone a signal and you'll come out and you'll have a code to unlock it and you'll pull out your hopefully still hot pizza and, and, and you know, and then the, the, the bot will trundle off back to, you know, wherever the, the presumably the van, the sent van that brought it there in the first place, something like that. Uh, or uh, Amazon is already talking about having uh, autonomous delivery van, electric delivery vans that use drones to drop packages off at houses. Now I'm, I have a hard time you know, imagining how that would actually work in a practical sense, but Amazon seems to think it's the future of you know, package uh, delivery. And I mean, that would be a, a lot of fun to have. I, how does that work? Well, high school students go out and you know, do some research and find out about how that technology, because there's certainly enough information out there about it. And uh, and how might that how might that change your behavior or how change how you live or your family lives? Yeah, like I can imagine, you know, split the class into five groups and each group sort of comes up with their projection of how that would impact your individual life, your family's life, the nature of life in the neighborhood. 
would that result in a change in demographics in your community? And that's only the social side of it. You know, how would that impact the financial side of things? You know, what are the costs associated with these? Like there's just so much. And then you bring in the ecological carbon reduction side and maybe you could even assign each group a different focus area and then bring it all together with a class discussion at the end saying, okay, so each group has sort of talked about different areas of change. Is this something that we think is realistic? Is this something that we should get excited about? Why or why not? And it's real life stuff and it's, it's just cool. Gizmos are cool. <laughs> That's right. We love our gadgets and why, and why wouldn't we? Uh, so let's talk about employment. I mean, if you're in grade yeah. 11 or 12, you're probably thinking about going, you know, you're going to, are you going to go to school after post-secondary? Are you, are you, what, what do you want to do with your life? What kind, well, quite often when I'm talking to researchers and then one in particular comes to mind, I, I can't remember his name, but uh, it was professor, he was a researcher at uh, Simon Fraser University and he was developing a membrane for filtering particles out of, out of water, um, might've been lithium, something like that. And I said, do you have to, you know, are you always looking for, for employees, like for researchers and technical assistants and, and those sorts of things? He said, always. He said, always. If you know anybody that's like that, send them in, a, in our direction. So there are a lot of these kinds of jobs that are hidden away in research labs and, and startups and so on that kids, in, you know, aren't aware of. And they're, they're great jobs. They pay really well. They're interesting jobs. There's a lot of science and technology that's involved in them. And, and, uh, and we don't talk about that enough. You know, there, there are, and I, there's a, from what I can gather with the folks that I have interviewed, my impression is that there's a shortage of these kinds of workers. And, you know, I don't think there are, are enough kids going into either technical school or, or university thinking about going into those, into those fields. So ferreting out those jobs would be an interesting research project. And that kind of goes against the narrative that you know robots are going to take our jobs that's hugely oversimplifying it but we do hear about that it's like well you know what if everything's going to be automated who's going to work it's like well people have to program they have to maintain they have to upgrade they need to work in those labs in those high skill high paying jobs that you mentioned so it's just it's switching it's not necessarily replacing it's just reshuffling the deck chairs i actually did a really interesting interview about that so stats canada in last year did an interview about the, the impact of robotics on employment. And what they found is that companies on average where they, uh, where they adopted robots increased employment by 15%. There you go. And you, you, uh, anybody who wants to watch that, watch that interview uh, can go to our, uh, the Energy Media, E-N-E-R-G-I Media uh, YouTube channel. And if you search on the channel for robot, that will be one of the few videos that come up. And that the economist said very clearly, I mean, it changes the type of em employment. If I, if I remember correctly, it, there were fewer managers because you had fewer workers to manage, uh, but there were more people actually working on the floor with the robots. And there were more people above the, the middle manager. Uh, and that's where the, there were actually new jobs created. So there are all sorts of, uh, I mean, this is an exciting time to be alive. I, you know, you could think of a, an industry like, you know, freight hauling. I mean, what is that? I mean, you, you put pallets in the back of a trailer and then you're a trucker and you long haul trucker. That, that may not appeal to, to kids in grades 11 and 12 if they're thinking of a career, but make it electric and make it uh, so now that you're, you're dealing with, uh, you know, electric trucks, 
and batteries and charging infrastructure and all sorts of, you know, sort of cool technology. And maybe that's, maybe that's a different job. Maybe that's a more interesting job. I, I don't know. I've just pulled that one out as an example of, of where things are going, where employment's, the industry sort of stays the same, but the technology it uses is different. The workers it needs are different. And that seems to me to be ex an exciting time if you're, you know, a high school student contemplating your future. Lots of possibilities uh, that weren't around when I graduated back in, back in the day. In the day. And this is a really positive note to end off on. And it really isn't the end because this is, you could almost call it the prologue to this three-part webinar series that we mentioned earlier. And that starts October 27th. And you can register for free at greenteacher.com slash webinars. It's being co-hosted by Green Teacher, the Alberta Council for Environmental Education, and Green Learning. And Markham is the keynote presenter in all three sessions. And we will be presenting, in addition to that, educator resources all related to teaching about climate and energy solutions. And we know that we need to spend more time talking about solutions, not to distract ourselves from the, the problems that still need attention and still need to be solved, but we're not going to get by on this gloom and doom stuff. And I think this is a very exciting space to spend our time and energy. Hope and optimism uh, wins out over gloom and doom all the time. Indeed it does. Well, thank you so much, Mark. And this has been a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to the three sessions coming up this fall. As am I, and thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Dean. It's important to remember that we mustn't fall into the techno-optimist trap of sticking to the status quo and waiting for miraculous technology to save us down the road. We need bold action on climate change and biodiversity loss now. And more than ever, we know that we indeed have the technology to make it happen. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. And I should point out, I, I had a point I was going to make in and now the, the train has left the station, but it, it will come uh, back. It happens.